two million bucks for the U.S. and Canada. Any of the albums that I make? Yeah. Um, there are a couple of writers from the New Musical Express in England. Um, would you like me to try and get you a copy of this? I would would love it, it be of any uh, kind of possible have... use background? I mean, it's yes. uh, again, I don't agree with all of it, um, but of the books that I've seen on my work, terrific. If you can get, if I, I can get a copy, of, do you know what I'm doing? Do you know why I'm bothering yes, you with I do. this? Yeah. yeah. And I have now done 225 interviews. Good this book is coming out in November. And you run a record company. It is, it is, it's <laughs> killing me. It's killing me to, because James Brown will say. Hey, man, you know I love you. Why don't you come to Augusta? I said, yes, that's two days. Yeah. i got to take out of work to go down. Can't you do it on the phone? Can't we do something? I've just started doing something on the phone. I did Phil Collins and Robert Plant last week on the have phone. You how, how did you do it, Brown? Oh, with James Brown? Yeah. I finally did him on the phone. Extraordinary and he was crazy. Oh, man's crazy. Extraordinary man guy. is out of his mind. Uh, absolutely. Well, Jerry Lee Lewis is out of his mind. Little Richard. I have talked with some lunatics yes. in this period. I started with big bands, <laughs> with Artie Shaw, who, who probably is still talking, David. How wonderful. The man, have you ever, you, you've probably never met him. I know the music, oh. pretty good. But my music. God, he, you turn on the tape recorder and he starts and that's it. And yeah. he is so bright. The yeah. man reads two or three books a week. Yeah. He has opinions on everything. Yeah. And, I, and a strange thing happened. I interviewed Ray Charles. And I mentioned, Ray, I mentioned the Artie Shaw to Ray Charles. And he started to jump around. Artie Shaw was his hero. Was his good, absolute good. idol. He says the man had ethics and he could play the... So I said, have you ever met him? He said, no. So I called Artie Shaw. And put the and two I, together. I set up a lunch. After all this time. the two of them together, and they were like two asking for autographs, asking for albums to be That's autographed and things isn't like that. that. And it has been, I think this book can be a big winner, but if it's not, I have had an extraordinary experience uh, yeah, in talking you to must have had. B.B. King or Frankie Lane or Bo Diddley or Paul McCartney or yeah. George Michaels or Aretha Franklin or Herbie Hancock and Stan Getz and... Oh, there's, there's 200 and some odd. And it's been edited, and the Warner Books will have it, and it'll be ready for November this year. And I'm thrilled I got a chance to spend a little time with you. Oh, I'm so too happy. I have, in doing research for all of these people, there's some like Bob Dylan and the Beatles, there's obviously tomes of material. I have never read such psychoanalytical background of an artist as I've read about David Bowie. Mm. The... the how do you feel about that? Do you believe any of this stuff? This sounds incredibly... I'm not sure if it sounds uh, uh, elitist or, or naive on my part, but I, I frankly have never read anything that has been put out in book form on me other than the couple of record books that have come out. But in terms of people analysing me, I think that would... Um, just get in my own conception, get in the way of my own conception of what I do, what I, what, what I want to do. You are aware that there is this psychobabble that goes on. Uh, yeah, here's a, I, I read this last night. I mean, here's 23 pages of, of uh, you know, I've never read things like this about somebody. Usually it's about the career. Well, I'm, sure, I'm quite sure I remember seeing yeah. stuff on Dylan yeah. that was much the same. And, uh, and, I guess and so. There was an English period yeah. on the Beatles when Tony Palmer first decided that they were art in the yeah. times. I think that produced a, that really sort of started the whole ball rolling for home philosophers and, and psychoanalysis on artists. When it was happening uh, during those 70s, were you conscious of it then there about how people were perceiving you? Um, yes, uh, yes, it was all far too uh, it was all far too ridiculous I thought. It really is. I'm just a popular musician.
and that and you view yourself that way. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Completely so. Why, before you came along and did it, the, the popular music stars uh, had not projected other personas? What, what inspired you to do it, uh, to, to take on... It wasn't... I, I don't think it was... Uh, it was fairly much of... Up until... I th there were a, a body of us, I think, in England at the time that were working toward, maybe separately from each other, but working toward the idea of... Uh, um, giving another dimension to rock. I mean, we all enjoyed rock. And most of us were at art school, I suppose. There were Roxy Music, um, T-Rex, Mark Bolan. Um, who else, I guess? I guess, in uh, and, and in America, there was Iggy Pop, who, of course, is also radically different to the person that he rejects on stage. But up until that time, I think it was what you see is what you get. And it just seemed to be interesting at that time to try and devise something that would have at any other period have been put into just the, the musical tradition like a musical where the artist on stage was in fact playing a part uh, it just seemed to be uh, an interesting way to go well while you were doing that in England I had signed an act in the States Alice Cooper that yes were you conscious of Alice and what they were doing, or uh, it happened about the same time? Yeah, from a periphery kind of way. Um, I like I, I I liked him very much. He was, I I, uh, I got to meet him pretty early on, and, and uh, I really liked the guy. I thought he was a really nice guy. In fact, a lot of those guys I liked. I liked Johansson from the New York Dolls, yes, yeah. who was also um, uh, a pretty hip guy around that period, um, and I I found him terribly amusing. Uh, anecdotal and uh, and just kind of a joy to be with, and I found the same with Vince as well. And with here the, is Hanson out with another. Yeah, we character. kind of all knew each other, I yeah. think, or at least of each other. Yes. I actually didn't see Alice until well into the um, period, probably around seventy five, seventy six. Um, I was so single minded about doing what I wanted to do that um, I actually probably see more bands and more artists these days than I did in those days. What was the reaction of of your audience, of, of that audience, mm. it wasn't your audience at the moment, mm. when when you came and you, you did theatre on stage? Huh? Well, yeah. I guess uh, in England it's very easy to build up a cult following. We started off in playing small clubs in and around London. Uh, we developed very quickly a very sizable cult, and they would travel. Uh, it was very... And until we came to America, I think that's the first time we played to audiences who weren't sort of our audiences. And then it was just a question of... Uh, letting them know that the music was quite as good as the theatrics. And uh, we actually had an easy ride. We didn't have many problems of anybody really being anti what we did once they came to the shows. As in all cases, if the thing's worth doing on stage, I think if you can cut it on stage, I think the audience is with you. There are, there are two aspects of the music. One... Uh, we had very small audiences oh, yes, in America. That's right. I remember Let me add that. Yeah. <laughs> <They were not laughs> we were not... Better uh, lads. Although De Vries tried very hard to yeah. um, magic up a, a huge following yeah. for us, we were, in fact, playing to maybe in a 10,000-seat or 800 people. I mean, it was uh, quite disparate. <laughs> was, was that discouraging for you? I'm sorry? Was that discouraging for you? That um, I think, no, we were so excited by what we did. I think we yeah. thought that we saw the whole thing as a kind of... A, um, a helter-skelter kind of ride anyway. I mean, it was just such fun. The whole period was loony. 
Somebody, uh, I, I read a quote, somebody called you a surreal cartoon character brought to life. It was sort of, yeah. Ziggy was. I mean, he was half out of sci-fi rock and half out of the Japanese theatre. I think those are the two major elements that I put into him. The clothes were, that time, simply outrageous and, and simply nobody had seen anything like them before. Um, they were the brainchild of a now very well-known designer called Kansai Yamamoto who was uh, just sort of beginning then, and I fortunately had uh, seen a lot of his stuff and thought he was probably the, the most extraordinary designer at the time. And uh, we got together and he did all the early Ziggy clothes. So, And he knew what I wanted out of Japanese theatre as well, so he kind of contemporised a lot of the Japanese kind of kabuki and no theatre look and made it work for rock and roll. David, there was nothing that I had ever read in your background and growing up that would have indicated that you would have taken this extraordinary interest in so many other dimensions of the arts, the, as you say. Yeah, the not really. I mean, it was, where uh, did it, was it self-taught? I guess more than anything else, yeah. I mean, it was a, just a very reserved, quite um, respectable childhood. Nothing ever really happened to me that one would consider freaky. I mean, it was... Uh, uh, just a, a south of London school. Uh, I, di I guess the only thing which might have spurred my interest on a bit more was the fact that I went to one of the first art-oriented high schools in England, the equivalent of a high school, where one could take an art course from the age of about 12, 13, as opposed to waiting till 17 when you go to art school. So there was a strong bias toward art from when I was quite young. And I had a very excellent teacher, Peter Frampton's father. Oh, that's right. Um, who really kind of was quite an inspiration to all of us who were involved with him because it was an experiment for him to try and get kids involved in art at a younger age than they would otherwise. And so I think about... There must have been a good three-quarters of our class went on to art school, which is a hell of a proportion. Um, and some of us went straight into street jobs because we, either we didn't really believe in ourselves as painters or artists. And I was one of those. I went into the visual side of an advertising agency and I was doing paste-up jobs and, and small designs for raincoats and things like that. <laughs> awful. Maybe, Absolutely well, maybe awful. Maybe should have kept it to all this. Well, if all this goes down the tubes, <laughs> you can always go and get on Madison <laughs> Ave there with the best of them. I think those days are over. Uh, um, but it did give me an unbridled interest in art. And I think if one is acquisitive in... in acquisitive and inquisitive in knowledge and, and have a natural thirst for it. It goes through your entire life. I mean, I never stopped having an interest in what painters are doing or, or, or what writers are writing. And I'm, I'm an avid reader. And I'm, I go to the theatre a lot. I, I, I just get out and about and see the people who are trying to reproduce the fabric of our society and how they do it. And, and it's, uh, it's just... a an unbridled passion that I have for it. I love it. I, I collect a little. Back to the uh, the theatre on stage. Yeah. Was there a point where uh, people didn't take your music seriously because you were um, theatrics? I'm I'm not really sure about that. Um, I don't think it ever. I think I moved out of Ziggy fast enough to, so as not to be caught by that one. Um, I noticed it did happen with Alice yes. uh, in a bad way. Absolutely. Um, and possibly it's because most rock characters that one can create only have a short lifespan. I don't think that they're... 
overly durable album after album. I think it's. Um, I think they are one shots. They are cartoony. If you're going to get involved in that kind of thing, and the Ziggy thing was worth about one or two albums before I couldn't really write anything else around him or yeah. the world that I sort of wanted to put together for him. So after Lad Insane, which was the sort of follow-up to um, that, I had to start thinking quickly about what I wanted to write about next, which came out as an abortive attempt at 1984. Abortive because we couldn't get the rights from Mrs. O. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, because uh, she saw his work uh, through a far more serious pair of eyes than, than uh, I imagined. We did. I got half the thing written, and... and like a very naive again, and before I thought, oh, I'd better go and ask her if, she, if I can continue doing this, you know. And I got a big N.O. So, oh, no, what do I do now? So I I, I sort of did a, a quick turnaround, and it became Diamond Dogs, which was sort of um, a piecemeal attempt at forming a sort of a post-nuclear kind of society with that sort of... Uh, rather shabbily disguised, anyway. Form of 1984. Did did the the uh, trying to achieve uh, some kind of theme running through or some kind of character? Did that distract you from the music itself, or were you able to just go straight ahead with music? Actually, funnily enough, I've always found it easier to write for other people than for me. Yeah. I feel terribly inhibited about writing for me because it's only the last few years that I've actually resigned myself, and it is a resignation that I. I'm a moderately good singer. I'm not a great singer, but I can interpret a song, which I don't think is quite the same as singing it. Um, so I was never unaware of my strength as uh, an interpretive performer. But writing a song for me, always, it, it never rang true. I had no problem writing something for Iggy Pop for, uh, or working with Lou Reed or writing for Mott the Hoople. If anybody wants a song, come and ask me and I can do it in 15 minutes and I have a great time doing it. I can get into their mood and what they want to do. But I find it extremely hard to write for me. Um, so I found it quite easy to write for the artists that I would create. I guess that must have gone hand in hand with the reason why I wanted to do it like that in the first place. Because I did find it much easier, having created a Ziggy, to then write for him. <laughs> even though it's, even though it's me doing it, it's, it, it I was able to sort of pl uh, distance myself from the whole. Yeah, well, it can become very complicated. There is a yes, it, it, it is. It's, yeah, fucking with the fabric yeah. of time. There. Um, it did. It did. It did bring its, its a whole sackful of its own inherent problems. But it, <laughs> some of them weren't as funny as the rest of it. But uh, it, it certainly was easier writing for a character. Um, until recently, and, and uh, it seems as I've got older that I find it easier to write purely and simply for my own satisfaction. Yeah. One thing I've never written for is uh, an audience. Um, I've found that the occasional couple of times I've actually tried to write for an audience, I've never felt comfortable with it, and I've felt that artistically it's always been... Uh, somewhat short of, of what it should have been. So I, I do feel that, that an artist can only write for himself and his own personal satisfaction and if he still has an audience at the end of it that's wonderful but it, it can it's I think yeah. it's it's foolish to just try and be popular I think it's short-lived satisfaction the fulfillment is not great 
There was at one point you really wanted to make some revolutionary kind of record, wasn't it, with uh, Visconti or... Uh, yeah, I, I think, well... I, that happened I, later on. I yeah, yeah, we can that. jump onto that quite yeah. easily. Um, there was from the, the Diamond Dog ab yeah. abortive 1984 thing, which did produce one excellent tour. I put uh, every possible thing I'd ever wanted to see on a stage in rock and roll on the stage with that tour, the Diamond Dogs tour. They recorded a live album too, didn't they? Yes, they yes. Needless to say, it's a yeah. huge financial disaster, but it was a terrific bit of uh, stuff to have done. Um, it was in fact where I, on that tour that I met Tony Basil for the first time. She'd been working uh, with a group of black dancers. This is 1974. Yes. And in 1972-73, she'd been working with a group of black dancers called the Lockers, who were, I guess, progenitors of what's now become the street the dance. Street yeah, do that. absolutely, yeah. 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 We got it was Campbell. Sinatra one time. Oh, did you, you know, you were aware of them, yeah. And it really was Tony who yeah. sort of brought them into the consciousness of, at least of Californians, and uh, I did. I believe they did do the Johnny Carson show one time, yes. very early on. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's sad that Tony never got the recognition for doing that because she worked so hard in the early seventies to make street dance something yes. that people would know about. And it wasn't until the late seventies, early well, no, it must have been the early eighties, until it street dance itself became something. Break dancing. And yeah, it, uh, yeah, yeah. And Tony was so much part of all that back in the 70s, and we were both aware, a little group of us, aware that that would be the, the way to go one day in dance, you know. Um, and she choreographed that particular tour, and it had elements of that. I won't say that it was um, waving any great banner for street dance, but it had certainly had elements of what was to come. When, when you were, you know, I, I read about your associations, you were... You were so close, you were, you were friendly with so many of the people on the cutting edge, the Mark Bolands and Brian Enos and yes, Lou Reeves yeah. and so forth. Uh, yes. Uh, did you have much of a relationship with the Zeppelin, Who, Beatles, Stones people? Not really, other than Mick, who I met. Uh, again, Mick is uh, ambivalent in his likes and dislikes. It's um, He's actually quite conservative when it comes to making his own records, funnily enough. Um, he's aware of new techniques all the time. He's aware of who's doing what and what's happening. Um, but he has, being a roots man, which he is, I mean, still to this day, the music that he plays m more than anything else is the blues. Rhythm and blues and the blues. He's never deviated from that. There's one thing you can say about me, is that he has absolute and perfect integrity to the music that he wanted to start playing when he first started playing music. Um, and he's bemused by all the other things that go on. Uh, whereas I'm more of a sucker, I'm more of a fan. Yeah. <laughs> if it's... Uh, if it's wearing uh, a pink hat and a red nose and, and it plays a guitar upside down, I'll go and look at it. You know, and I, I love to see people being dangerous, you know. And, and Mick, Mick will be more of an, uh, just a, uh, you know, an onlooker, I think. Um, but he, I guess of uh, that particular crowd, I guess Mick is the only one that I ever got to know. No, I never knew the Zeppelin or the... The Beatles and John was the only one that I got yeah. to know, and that was unfortunately yeah. uh, toward the end of his life. I, got, I first met him again in must have been '75-ish, Young Americans, about that I think. I don't know. You probably got better idea of the days than I have. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was truly an inspiration to be able to work with him. But it was one of those associations that lasted about the length of the recording, yeah. and then we didn't see each other again for about a year. Uh, but then we started to pick up on what was becoming a, 
a very instructive and quite deep relationship. I mean, he, he of course, again, another one who uh, started off at art school. So a lot of the stuff that we used to talk about went into the world of, of the arts and why an artist wants to do things in the first place and all that. And it gets very sort of melodramatic and philosophic at two in the morning. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's the kind of relationship yeah. that one savours yeah, and it, sure. it's something that you don't forget easily. I guess he was the only other one that uh, I really got into close contact with. Um, but I never really felt um, part of the, the other stuff, not, not from, again, not from elitist things at all is that I really didn't think I played as well as them and, and or sung there was a real feeling of inadequacy in, in that area I never really felt like a rock singer or rock star or whatever and I always felt a little bit out of my element which is uh, uh, a ridiculously highfalutin way of looking at it now from my standpoint when I look back and realise that from 72 through till about 76 I was the ultimate rock star Mm-hmm. I couldn't have been more Zillion rock star. Records and new, uh, but the lifestyle and everything. everything. I mean, it's sort of you know anything that was going out there that had anything to do with it being a rock and roll singer. Then I was, I'd say, hey, let's go for this. See what it's like. And uh, I was it for all that period. Uh, but I never really. I kept myself away from them, or maybe they kept themselves away from me. I don't know. With your, with your <laughs> I own, never really <laughs> With your own group, uh, if if uh, you turn that, I, I knew yeah. Mark quite well because he recorded. We released his records, the T Rex records. Yeah, he was delightful. I, I had a lot of fun with him. <laughs> Mark was great. But your that only, what a hustler. Oh, <laughs> he could he could get me turned around in a minute. I mean, about let's go do this. He no, was do that. such a funny yeah. little guy yeah. he was such a mischievous elf yeah. elfin yeah. Uh, he really was he knew exactly what he wanted and uh, he thought he knew how he was going to get it and I tell you man I got this sound that you're just not going to believe man it's yeah. it's uh, and then he'd go away and say what the hell am I going to do I've told everybody I've got this sound <laughs> and then he went and you'd see him sort of working out things to support the statements he'd said yeah. and what he was a great guy did he impact your music at all uh the music no but um just generally like a real London chummy thing. It was yeah. great. He was a great laugh. Yeah. And very. I, I tended to be, uh, not so much these days, fortunately, but I would get depressed very easily. I found myself to be what they call a sensitive British type. <laughs> the worst thing to be. Uh, and Mark was so buoyant that he could get, in 10 minutes, he could get you laughing about everything you thought was a real problem and a real trouble. No, he was a great, a good clown. Good clown, very talented guy as well. Oh. He knew what rock and roll was. And he could had manipulate that audience. And that oh, he was a wonderful showman. He really was a great showman. And not enough good footage was ever taken of no. him, unfortunately. The stuff that I've seen um, is certainly second rate. There's no yeah. really, really. And I've seen, I've seen him do some fantastic shows. Um, but it, that never, it, one of those instances mm-hmm. where nobody ever seemed to be there on the right night yeah. or yeah. something like that. Did your did that group of people feel that they were an avant garde? Did you uh, yeah. know, like a left bank crowd? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It had all that. Yeah. You know, there was a, a lot of feeling that. Well, we. I think that I think that there was quite um, a, a, quite a logical reasoning for that because there there was a kind of a, a hardening of the arteries in rock up until that time. It really was looking for something new, and we felt that we had a certain amount of. Uh, um, we had a humorous and sartorial edge on things, I think, that we felt was missing in rock. And we knew that there had to be something new. And, hey, we probably it. Yeah. I mean, we'd looked around and say, well, hey, there ain't much else. It's all so boring. Let's do 
what do I want to see on a stage that would really make me excited? And I think we went about doing that. The, uh, the injection of another character in your life was, of course, the freeze. Mm. Uh, how much did he have to do with creating, perpetrating, or destroying uh, what, what you had going? Uh, was he the perfect adjunct for I'm you? I'm never that? quite sure myself. I certainly, in terms of... I, I, quite nice of me to be able to have a way to say this publicly, but as far as creating what happened, I was 100% in terms of what happened creatively. Every single last touch of the mascara brush <laughs> was mine. There's absolutely no other way on that. In terms of getting me to an audience, or rather trying to get an audience in to see me, I don't know. De Vries certainly set up some extraordinary things, some of which uh, I couldn't believe he was doing at the time, but... We're, I guess it. I guess I'm not sure. I really don't know if it hindered me or helped me. I have absolutely no idea. I just, I just felt when the money was sort of going left, right, and centre towards the uh, end of our relationship that possibly this wasn't the best situation to be in anymore. But up until that time, like most first-time artists, you don't sort of look at the money <laughs> and. Uh, but in, in terms of the career, the career, I really don't know. Yeah. I, I I really don't know if it hindered or helped. I have absolutely no idea. One never does. It's probably good that it all happened in that way because it was certainly interesting. I think the only thing I've seen that came anywhere close to that was the kind of the McLaren Sex Pistols operation, yes, yes. which again, I mean, and is, I'm probably being unfair on somebody, but from the outside, you don't exactly know who was the Sex Pistols. Yeah. It, it's very odd. You get a, a reading that it was McLaren. You get other people say it was Johnny Rotten. You say it was a combination of the two. Um, so I understand what it, sometimes it must look like from the outside in terms of me and main man and, and whatever. For but any, Ziggy Stardust was me. <laughs> for anybody who ran into it, uh, he was a terminal pain in the ass. You know? I mean, the guy you know, just insisted on... The, the, the box be facing this way and that be facing that way and uh, you know we would go to see you we'd wonder why they had to put the box that way you know? I think his yeah. entire philosophy behind all that which we all felt uh, uh, all of us that were involved with him was uh, absolutely almost dardized that if you say if you go out and say you're a star then if you can say it loudly and long enough People will say it back. Comes reaction. <laughs> no. And and I know that his ultimate idol was Colonel Parker. Was the Colonel? Yeah, Colonel Parker. I think played a a, a great part in his dreams, um, an enormous part in his dreams. And it became, I guess, that sort of re that metaphysical relationship that he had with Parker became kind of a joke around the office. I mean, we all felt it was maybe uh, we wondered which of us was the rock star at some times, you know. <laughs> Well, <laughs> but it was it was glorious. It was gloriously funny. I guess now, I guess yeah, I think sure. it's funny. Do you I, have a <laughs> you have an affection for some of these characters that you've created? As you you know, as you look back, <coughs> the, the, the white. Uh, yeah. um, I think the only time I get yeah. sort of you know, uh, fi kind of nostalgic about any of that stuff at all is if I see the odd video or some or. Yeah. Or I, I see a bit of the Ziggy Stardust concerts or whatever. Uh, no, other than that, I, I don't think I'm cold about them, but I think it's work done. And I do tend to move on. I'm not, I'm not really... I don't incorporate much hindsight 
in, artistically into what I'm doing. I think that's an actor's uh, attitude too. I think you have to, otherwise you start. Yeah, yeah, you get into a danger of, of of getting into the rut and and maybe try to perpetuate something that's gone before. Again, for either to bolster your own feelings of confidence or to keep that audience, which seems to be the bane of a lot of performers and a lot of people that I know, are bugged with the idea that the they've got to have an audience, they've got to be liked, or they've you know. And uh, I think the more that you get fall into that trap, it makes your own life harder to come to terms with because you're not an audience appreciation is only going to be periodic at the best of times. You'll fall in and out of favour continually. It's not. Uh, I don't think it should be something one should be looking for. I think you should turn around at the end of the day and say, "I really like that piece of work," or "That piece of work sucked." Not was that popular or wasn't it popular? You know, I don't think that's. I think it's the job of the record companies and a lot of other people around the artist to possibly weigh up those situations. But I think the artist himself does owe it to himself and ultimately to whatever audience he's going to have to give the best of what he can do and feels personally satisfied with. Have you set yourself up uh, to be measured by a different standard that you just can't go out and make a record and do a tour, that you have to be someone? That, uh, is there pressure on you uh, to do that? To do it to, to do no, just to, yeah. to be someone, not not to make the fourteenth David Bowie record, but yeah. now you've got to be the Glass Spider. Yeah, so you've got to. Yeah, uh, I I don't I'm not sure. I think I might have helped myself in 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 that way, uh, saving myself being entrapped by that with the serious Moonlight tour. It helped an awful lot to just go out without a character and just do it on the strength of a um, a body of work. However, I had done that before. 1976 was the last time I did a character performance, which was The Thin White Duke. Yes. After that, I toured again in 78. Um, I think it's probably the least known of any of the tours that I've done, but that was the first time I had sort of stripped away anything that had to do with character um, and just went out and performed a body of work. And I felt so happy doing that and almost a sense of relief in a way that I could actually go out and sing my own songs without having to... Um, be someone. Be somebody, yeah. Be somebody else, rather. Yes. <laughs> How do you look at your body of work? Is there a great deal of pride? Is there yes, a uh, an awful of, lot of pride. Any period in particular that... Uh, yes, I guess, well, uh, the further away I get from it, the more I like uh, the Ziggy Stardust. And I had a period where I just couldn't face it anymore. I mean, it's around the early 80s. I mean, I really thought, God, it's the bane of my existence, that stuff. I got, you know, it's... It really sort of chases me around everywhere. But one has to, I guess, expect that. But I used to do, make a point of, in the 78 tours, do as l few of those songs as possible and all that. And I, I, I really quite like some of that period now. I like some of the Diamond Dog stuff. But I guess, uh, for me, the period that I had with Brian Eno, were about three years, consecutive years, we were recording together and, and uh, working together. And I produced three albums, Low Heroes and Lodger, uh, the three of which I feel were th some of the most uh, exciting uh, bits of work that I've ever done in terms of approaching a rapidly uh, uh, dealing with a rapidly approaching new way of making records and, and working with computers and, and I guess the first sort of paddling around with uh, techno pop. It was really something new to both of us, I and mean, the idea of working with what was really happening in Germany. It was the antithesis of what was happening in England, 
where rock had gone back to its most almost primeval form of, with a punk revolution, uh, a lot of which I admire very much indeed, um, as a movement, not individual pieces of work, as I don't think in a movement like that it's the individual pieces that are yes. of the import. It's, it's what the celebration was about, and in that time it was a celebration of, hey, I can do this, <laughs> any yeah. sucker can do this. Yeah. And that I, 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 I thought was great. Yeah. I thought that was terrific. However, where I was living at the time, which was in Berlin, uh, with uh, uh, my girlfriend at that time and, and Iggy and his girlfriend were set up there as well. And then Brian Eno came over and joined us. We would get so excited about a whole new thing that was happening in Dusseldorf and uh, this Connie Plank studio sound, which was all about computers and synthesizers and, and this almost mechanical approach to rock, which that same period, I think, produced... We all got over the moon about Giorgio Morodo and Donna Summers. The first single that they put out, we said, that's rock over the next ten years. And it really was. He must have done it, I think. I think he really did the first one that really said that this is what rock was going to sound like over the next ten years, at least. And it's still as true today as it was then. You were incredibly prolific during a period of time here, over a two-year period, maybe five albums. Yes, yeah, Uh, that that really took its toll, I think. It's hard. Well, I don't know. I think every artist probably has that one period where you just cannot stop working. I think you're you're very lucky if it happens to you again. Um, I think it's a pleasure if it does happen again. I don't think one, any artist can expect it to happen again. And that, that for me, was a, obviously a very exciting time. Have, have the motion pictures been a distraction to the music? Do you find that to your career? And no, it's almost like taking a sabbatical or something. I, I, I just, I, it's great to be able to put one sort of creative area in the hands of somebody else and see just out of the interest what, what they do with it. Um, it's kind of a, a luxurious position to be in, really, where people will ask for me to work with them. Um, and I don't have to do it for the money. I can really just do it because I want to do it. Uh, it's a possibility I might be doing a lot more theatre things over the next couple of years um, because I really don't want to leave that behind and get immersed too much in something that becomes so secular as this kind of, you know, the rock thing because it, 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 it can grate one it can it can really wear one down to be totally in one area of the arts What about the relationship with Iggy Pop? Where, mm. where did this stem from? And um, I think probably the, the reason that we get on so well is that we are the antithesis of each other um, ostensibly it seems that way but when at a roots level we're not at all we all read the same books uh, we both sort of, uh, I think, gravitate towards the same kinds of bands and music. Um, and maybe I'm a little more into a wider spectrum of the arts than Jim, but that doesn't certainly doesn't stop Jim from enjoying them a lot. But he has a far more animal approach to what he does, and it's it's uh, a lot more. There's a lot more physicality in what Jim does. Well, I guess a lot of what I do is a more starts off from a more cerebral thing maybe it displays itself more physically by the time it hits the stage but we both work in very different ways I guess that's why we enjoy each other's companies that we are so different do you have is there some impression of those 12 14 years in there I mean is there do you look back do you think it's almost happened to somebody else yeah (laughs) some of it it definitely did happen to somebody else (laughs) boy uh, 
But I think, <laughs> gosh, <laughs> on the whole, I think I, it's quite kaleidoscopic. Uh, it's it's quite a it's been quite a rich, um, colourful affair over the last. 12, 14, it's probably, I think we can push it back even yeah, further than probably, that, 15 yeah, years. Yes, <laughs> um, and I think I probably would not have would not have given up any one part of that. I think it's all been rather terrific. I feel very lucky to have been able to do all that stuff. And still come through it and be regarded seriously as an artist? Some like some would say seriously, some not. <laughs> is it hard being David Bowie? Not not really, not now, no. I, no, it's... Uh, I don't have the outsider's problem. I mean, for me, the world that I inhabit in reality is, is a probably a very different, very different world from the one that people would expect that I would be in. It's uh, far removed from a lot of what they would feel would be the limousine trappings of a rock existence or whatever. It's quite sedate. It's constantly moving. I travel an awful lot, which is one of the glories of, of being able to be in, in, in the particular business that we're in. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that one. I remember, I remember. It must have been around 69, 70, yeah. one of my first trips you to America. You were in the States then, Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, it was absolutely... I mean, I'd adored his work ever since I was... Because I was into jazz quite heavily when I was a kid. And uh, I liked the usuals, Eric Dolphy, you know, yes, Coltrane, sir. Parker and all that. Because I played saxophone originally when I was messing around. I was either going to be the greatest painter on earth or the worst saxophonist. I became the worst saxophonist. <laughs> it's a, uh, I, I talked to Sting a couple of weeks ago and he's talking about Gil Evans, how yeah. what a jazz fan Sting was. It was, it was big with the, yeah. British, uh, yes. the British rock players in the beginning. Yeah. I think jazz had an awful lot to do yeah. with it. And I saw Kenton at this club yeah. with, and there must have been more people on stage than there were in the audience. It was yeah. the saddest of events yeah. because of that. It was over. It was over. Uh, he, look, he didn't look well. He didn't no, he look was, well. But the music was just wonderful still. It was just sonic to sit there and hear the stuff that I'd only heard on albums. And there were maybe 15 of us in the audience, you know, and we were all of it, nearly in tears at the end of the night when these, like, 20 guys stood up and we 15 guys. <laughs> like, Pete Rugolo did a lot of yeah, yeah, and the yeah, Conti's, yeah. Uh, Connie yeah. and, and those people. Were, I stood around Hollywood, yeah. and, uh, in fact, I got Pete Rugolo, who's working on this compilation, I mean, he's finding the masters were remixing them and oh, remastering them digitally and so forth. Because they were, I was a college disc jockey when he started. Yeah. And I would play Kent. Yeah. I would, it blew my mind. It was so new. Oh, I mean, it was, through the earphones. Yeah. I turned that thing up loud. Yeah. I never heard yeah. anything like yeah. that. Just was, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, there's a few I've missed. Uh, I had an appointment with Benny Goodman and he died three days before, which was more inconvenient for him than for me, of course. But, uh, and a, and a few have died since. Buddy Rich, yeah, I interviewed, sure. and uh, Woody Herman. Yeah. Uh, they both have passed on. Yeah. But I've got them on tape. Uh, these tapes are going to four colleges that have asked from Yale and the University of Southern California and Michigan for their archives. Great. Uh, Great. And it's kind of, it, it's a worthwhile book, you know. And for me, if it doesn't sell a copy, what an experience, you know, to Absolutely. be talking to the people we... Call it Artistry and Rhythm. Artistry and Rhythm. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs>